0: morning again. I'd like you to turn in your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Charles Spurgeon said, the heart of the gospel is redemption, and the essence of redemption is the substitutionary sacrifice of Christ. Christ. They who preach this truth preach the gospel in whatever else they may be mistaken. But they who preach not the atonement, whatever else they declare, have missed the soul and substance of the divine message. What is he saying? The substitutionary sacrifice of Christ is the heart and the soul and the substance of God's message to us now we all know what a substitute is we substitute margarine for butter in sports you put a substitute in and he takes the place of another player but when the Bible talks about Christ being our substitute it ratchets that concept up to a whole new level and there's no verse in all of the Bible that explains the concept of substitution in more amazing terms than 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. It says, "He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him." Simply put, Christ was made sin so that sinners might, might be made righteous. He took our place so that we might take his place. That's the heart of the gospel. The story is told that in the days of Nero, there was a severe shortage of food in the city of Rome. But at the same time, there was an abundance of corn in Alexandria. The hungry Romans would watch the vessels come in from sea, hoping to find them filled with corn from Egypt. But instead, they found vessel after vessel filled with sand because the cruel emperor chose to put sand in the arena for his gladiator shows rather than food in the stomachs of his people. The preacher who does not preach the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ is delivering sand. And the preacher who does deliver this message is delivering nourishment to your soul. A doctor, lawyer, and preacher went deer hunting. As they were walking toward their tree stands, a big buck appeared out of nowhere, and all three hunters simultaneously shot, and the deer fell over dead. All three claimed to fire the shot that dropped the deer. They couldn't resolve their conflict, and so they decided to take the deer to a veterinarian. After a few minutes, the vet came out and said, well, there's no doubt. The preacher killed the deer. The lawyer spoke up and said, how do you know? And the vet said, because the bullet that killed the deer went in one ear and out the other. If you are used to letting what I say go in one ear and out the other, then I challenge you today to listen like you never have because I am delivering nourishment to your soul. See, if you don't get this, you've missed it all. If you don't get this, you've missed the boat. This is the heart of the gospel. This is how God redeems us from slaves to sons. This is how God reconciles us from enemies to friends. This is how God transforms us from sinners to saints. Now what I want to do this morning is look at verse 21 and then back up to verse 20. And we will see in verse 21 the amazing exchange. And then we'll see in verse 20 the amazing exchange appeal. First of all, the amazing exchange. In 1626, Peter Minute made an amazing exchange. He traded some scarlet cloth, brass buttons, and other trinkets to the Indians for an entire island that we now call Manhattan. Those trinkets were worth 60 guilders or about 24 dollars. So he exchanged $24 for 14,000 acres. That's about a penny for every six acres. And as you know, that real estate today is worth billions and billions of dollars. Well, if you think that's an amazing exchange, if you think that's a lopsided exchange, We're going to examine a more lopsided exchange where God traded Christ's righteousness for your sin. And to help us understand that, I want us to ask four questions that we find answered in this verse. Four simple questions. The first question, Who is He? And notice the phrase in verse 21. Him who knew no sin. Our substitute is sinless. To reinforce that, listen to what his friends said. Peter, James, and John were closest to Jesus. They knew Him best. They lived with Him for three years. Peter calls Him in Acts 3.14 the Holy One. Any of your friends call you that? In 1 Peter 2.22, he says of Jesus, He committed no sin. And John echoes that in 1 John 3.5 when he says, In Him there is no sin. Listen to what his enemies said. Judas, the man who betrayed him, said, I have betrayed innocent blood. Pilate, who acted as his judge, said, I find no fault in him. The criminal hanging next to him on the cross said, this man has done nothing wrong. In fact, a demon-possessed man in Luke chapter 4, the demon speaks out of that man and says to Jesus, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Listen to what Jesus himself said in John 8, 29. He said, I always do the things that are pleasing to my Father. Can anyone else say that? I always do what's pleasing to Him. And then listen to what the Father said. Matthew 3, 17. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to what the Holy Spirit says who breathed the words of Scripture. Hebrews 4, 15. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 7:26 He is holy, innocent, undefiled and separate from sinners. Think about it. He never sinned in his actions. He never sinned in his motives. He never sinned in his words. He never exaggerated, he never stretched the truth. He never sinned in his thoughts never had an evil wish, never had an evil desire. Even when we catch him in secret in Scripture, what's he doing? He's praying. Imagine, Jesus never had to say, I'm sorry. Never had to say, forgive me. He said, forgive them. But never forgive me. He never had to say, that was my fault. Because he had no fault. An evil glance never darted from his eyes. A hasty word never fell from his lips. His feet never went in the wrong direction. His hands never moved toward an evil deed. His heart was filled with holiness and love. He was unblemished inside and out. His desires were as pure as his actions. When searched by the eye of omniscience, the Father said, I am well pleased. That's who He is. Our substitute is sinless. Second question. What happened to Him? Look in verse 21 again. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Peter says it this way in 1 Peter 2.24. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. He was our substitute. God laid all the weight of human sin on Christ who didn't commit it, instead of on us who did commit it. That's an amazing exchange. Isaiah 53 lays this out in detail. In verse 4 it says, Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening, chast- chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. At Golgotha, He endured the scourging that should have shred my back. He endured the spitting on his face that should have been on my face. He took the mocking that was mine. He wore the crown of thorns that should have pierced my head. Those spikes that were pounded into his hands and feet should have been pounded into mine. But he was my substitute. For those six hours on the cross, Jesus experienced hell for you and me. He endured all the punishment for all the sin, for all mankind, for all time. Verse 21 is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. What I find interesting about it is, in the English translation, it's only 24 words. And only three of those words are more than one simple syllable. So this is simple language. But I want you to notice how profound it is. Verse 21 says, He made him who knew no sin to be sin." On our behalf. Him who knew no sin was made sin. Now, the more you contemplate that, the more you should marvel about that. And I want to be careful here because you get on this kind of ground and you can get in trouble saying the wrong thing. I don't want to say too much because this is what the scripture says in very simple language. Jesus was made sin. What does that tell me? It tells me that God not only put our sin on Jesus, He not only treated Jesus like a sinner, He treated Jesus like sin. Because He was made sin for us. God hates sin, and Jesus was made sin. Sin all gathered up into one mass. All the murder, all the lust, rape, gossip, lying, adultery, crime, all piled up in one hideous heap. I think that explains why in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus sweat as it were great drops of blood falling to the ground because he felt the weight of what was coming. This is why Jesus said in John 3:14, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Remember that story? They sinned. God sent serpents into the camp, snakes all over the place, biting people, killing people. God told Moses, put a brass serpent on a pole and hold it up. And everybody who looks to the serpent on the pole will live. That serpent is a picture of Jesus. Now you say, well, why a serpent? A serpent is a symbol of Satan. A serpent is a symbol of evil. Jesus became sin for you and me. You see, he became the very plague that was killing us. And then he died in our place take that away. That's what happened. Third question. Who did it to him? Verse 21 begins with the pronoun he. That's God. And that shows us at least three things about God. Number one, it shows us his sovereignty. The first Word in this verse is God, and the last word in this verse is God. Redemption begins and ends with God. It would have been impossible for you and I to decide we were going to put our sin on Jesus. That didn't work. But God could do that, and God did do that because he's sovereign. Secondly, we see his justice. How does God let the guilty go free and still be just? If he takes your sin off of you, where is he going to put it? Some people act like he just sweeps it under the carpet. He just forgives you and forgets about it. Well, if he did that, he wouldn't be just. He cannot compromise his justice for his mercy. That's why I love the phrase, in Romans 3.26, it says the cross demonstrates that God is both just and the justifier. He justified you, but He stayed just. Why? Because a substitute to Jesus Christ died in your place. And then thirdly, this shows us His grace. And His grace is evident because you don't deserve this. Someone has define grace this way. It's God giving me what I need instead of what I deserve. Grace is God giving you what you need, an eternal pardon, rather than what you deserve, eternal punishment. But grace is even more amazing than that when we remember that Him who God made to be sin for us was his own son. He didn't just write a check. He gave his son to die for you. But we could even go further than that because the reality is that he gave his own self because the son and the father are one. That's why it says in verse 19, God was in Christ reconciling the world. That's amazing grace. And then the fourth question. What was the consequence for us? Look at verse 21 again. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that, here it comes, we might become the righteousness of God in him. Here's what makes the exchange amazing. We exchange our sin for his righteousness. And this is really the concept of justification in the Bible. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 says we are justified by faith. Now, some people define justification as just as if I'd never sinned. It's easy to remember and it's clever, but it's not really correct. It's not accurate. Because if I was just as if I'd never sinned, that's just God bringing me back out of debt to zero and leaving me there. He'd get me back to a, a, a zero. I'd be out of the red. I'd be back to even if I was just as if I'd never sinned. That's not what justification means. Justification means declared righteous. Righteous. By faith you have gone from being declared sinner to declared righteous. He took you out of the red, and your bank account is now full. But that doesn't even capture all that God has done, because what does our verse say? Look closely. We don't just become righteous. We become what? We become righteousness. Let me try to describe that for you. If I had a box and I overlaid it with gold, I could say to you, this box is golden. But if I had a box and it was solid gold, I could say, this box is gold. If you are a believer... You are not just righteous-plated. You are righteousness to the very core. But that's not all. Are you ready for this? Look at the verse again. We're not only made righteousness, we are made the righteousness of God. Now that's deep. The righteousness that Adam had in the garden was perfect. But it was the righteousness of man. God didn't say, I'm going to bring you back out of sin and I'm going to give you the righteousness of man. No. He said, I'm going to give you the righteousness of God. Human righteousness failed, but the believer has divine righteousness that can never fail. And listen not only do you have it, but you are it. You have been made the righteousness of God. That's the amazing exchange. That is the heart of the gospel. God made Jesus your sin and made you his righteousness. Now, real quickly, let's look at the amazing appeal. We've already gone over this verse, but I want to go over it again. Verse 20. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're going to look at this from three angles. First, God's part. God is appealing through us. And what kind of appeal is he making? He is begging. God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, and He is in us begging the world to be reconciled. Now that's amazing to me on two levels. Number one, it's amazing to me that God begs. There's nothing else God has to beg for. He said, let there be light. There was light. He has myriads of angels that stand at his beckoning for his command to go immediately and do what he commands. He commands the wind and it stops. He commands Lazarus and a dead man comes out of his grave. And yet he begs you. That's amazing. It's also amazing to me that God would have to beg you. Why would a person not accept this exchange? God says, I'm going to take your sin and I'm going to give you my righteousness. To say no to that is like being a criminal on death row and saying, I reject the pardon. Why do men have to be begged? The Bible tells us it's because we love the darkness rather than the light. Because our deeds are wicked. We love our sin. That's absurd. But we want to hang on to our sin rather than accept God's provision of forgiveness and grace. It's like somebody in the wilderness saying, I'd like to look at the serpent on the pole, but I love my snake. I want to hang on to my snake. I really have adjusted to my snake. I really like my snake. It's amazing that God would have to beg us to take this exchange that cost him so much. And then second, is our part. As God's amb- ambassadors, we beg. I don't know about you, but I don't like to beg. I only beg when I really care about something. remember one time I, I was invited by a friend in St. Louis. He was a college student. He was working at a, a country club up there. and On Mondays, they would close the club. And he said, if you come up, we can play golf for free on this beautiful country club. Only problem is they're working on the carts, so we can't use a cart. And it was this time of year. It was like July. It was 97 degrees and 100% humidity. And we went out to play golf and we walked, of course. What I didn't know was that the first nine didn't end up at the clubhouse. The first nine went straight out. And we went out, and there were no drinking fountains. So he and I and another guy got to the ninth hole, and we were totally dehydrated the worst I've ever been. We were laying on the ground by our golf clubs. I would have given my golf clubs for a little bit of water. And we saw a guy, maintenance guy, and we made our way over to him and we begged him to take us back to the clubhouse because we needed water. We will beg for what we're desperate for. We will beg for what we care about. You know what, the reason why you and I don't beg people to come to Jesus Christ is because we don't care about them the way God does. You've probably heard of Jim Elliott. He and Nate Saint and three other ambassadors went to Ecuador to take the gospel to the Alca Indians. Alca was the name given to them by other tribes, it meant naked savages. And on Sunday, January 8th, 1956, they met a large group of Alcas at the Curaray River. They were all excited because they thought they were gonna to get to share the gospel with these Indians, but all five of those missionaries were killed by spears thrown by the natives. Jim Elliott's wife, Elizabeth, stayed in Ecuador and settled among the Alca people, and eventually many of them came to know Christ. Nate Saint's son Steve, who was five years old when his dad was killed, moved back to Ecuador and reached out to the Alcas. In 1996, 40 years after that bloody afternoon, Steve Saint sat in the native village and spoke with five men who had been a part of the group that killed the missionaries. The oldest of the five was a man by the name of Gakita. And he told Steve that there had been a question that had haunted him for 40 years. You see, one detail often overlooked is that all five missionaries had loaded pistols with them. So Gakita asked why Jim Elliott and his dad and the other three didn't use their pistols to defend themselves. And after pondering the question for a moment, Steve said, I believe the reason they didn't shoot you was because they knew they were going to heaven and they knew you weren't. That is displaying the sacrificial heart of God. And when we understand that this is the heart of the gospel and we really have God's heart for lost people, a heart that gave his all, then you and I, like God, will give our all and we will beg people to come. Third is your part. And that's at the end of verse 20. It says, be reconciled to God. God has come 99% of the way to you and you just have to come in simple childlike faith to him. He's done all the work. He reconciled you. He paid for your sin. He's offering you his righteousness. He's begging you to respond. And what do you have to do? Well, what do enemies do? They surrender. You have to surrender. You have to stop running, stop fighting, lay down your weapons, lay down your sin, lay down your snake, and surrender to God. can't help thinking of the illustration in the Old Testament where Jacob in Genesis 32 wrestled with God. It's almost amusing. A man wrestling with God. And in the course of their wrestling, God touched his hip and dislocated it. God broke him. And he quit fighting. He surrendered. And God changed him from Jacob to Israel. And you know what? He limped for the rest of his life. But he was a different man with a different name. God who exchanged His Son for you, who exchanged His righteousness for your sin, is begging through me today, be reconciled to God. Surrender and come home. As you contemplate your place in that appeal today, have the praise team come back. We're going to close our service in adoration to the Lord. Let's stand as we do so.